recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Max lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Max lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, darkness restoration enthusiasts. That's right, we're back here on the the Restoring Darkness podcast. Today I'm with Tim Brothers. He's the observatory manager at MIT's Wallace Astrophysical Observatory, where he teaches students how to observe the night sky with robotic telescopes. He is also the vice president of the Massachusetts chapter of the International Dark Sky Association and a member of the Model Lighting Ordinance Working Group. He and his wife are quite busy raising chickens and their kids um, on a rural homestead where they can just barely see that Milky Way. Let's get to him now. What's up, Tim? How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Um, you know, we, we sort of changed gears uh, on the on the Restoring Darkness podcast, and we're moving away from sort of what we miss and some of the pain and suffering, but we always get into it a little bit, and we're moving more towards the practical solutions in, in doing it. I want to start off with this Milky Way on your homestead and that, and, you know, tell me why it's important to have that in your bio that you can almost see it or kind of see yeah. it. Why is that important? I, I think we have to make some some sort of red line, so to speak, where we say, uh, you know, this this is the canary in the coal mine for this particular issue. Um, you know, for climate change, it might be a certain Celsius increase in, in global temperature or in, uh, percentage of carbon in the atmosphere. For, for light pollution, I, I think it's really about, can you still see the Milky Way? Because I think it's a really good indicator of how pristine if you've crossed that line to where it becomes a much harder problem to solve, and if you can still see it, um, the problem is, is actually very solvable in the near term. Uh, and so I think it's important to preserve this large swath of, of the country that can still see that, that Milky Way that we talk about a lot, um, but maybe we're not, maybe it's even there, we're not even paying attention to it. And I think that's one of the, the biggest issues is just getting people to pause and, and take a moment, look up, and then, and then you can make that larger connection of, you know, okay, how do we start implementing solutions? Well, you mentioned climate change and, and, you know, I, I wonder to myself often when talking to people is why, why darkness restoration? I don't, that's why I don't like the term dark skies. Yeah. I think it's the, I, th- I think it's limiting. Um, I think we want bright skies at night in a way, you know, I think it, it, it also doesn't accurately describe the, what is, what the problem is. And I like darkness restoration and preservation a lot better. I think it, 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 it kind of describes it, but why is it, why is it not considered an environmental issue? That is a good question. Um, 
you know, and, and I, I can say for my own self, you know, I, I, I came to this problem from an, from an astronomer's mindset, you know, worrying about, can I, can I take data? Can I teach my students how to take data? Um, are those guys going to be accessible? And then sort of over time, you know, the last decade I've sort of put together the other pieces. This is an environmental problem. You know, it's related to, you know, if you want to see fireflies, if you want your crops pollinated properly, um, that's that's a pretty big environmental problem. And and the thing is, I think what people don't realize is this problem is moving at the speed of light, really, right? Because we're we're actually talking about photons here, and so the the effects that we're we're feeling are very immediate, um, not just in our perception of the night sky, but also, um, you know, if you think about well, what's driving climate change? Well, what is it? It's it's using too much energy. Uh, which is largely based on burning carbon still. So if, if that's your, your primary problem with the environment as a whole, well, lighting, we've made huge strides in the ability to cut the amount of carbon we're burning to facilitate that lighting. So, so I think we actually have a lot we can do to help solve that problem too, this larger environmental issue, um, you know, burning less carbon, using less energy, um, but we're sort of missing the mark on, on utilizing um, those are technological advances we've made in the last few years. Well, you know, I, I, I don't like mitigations. You know, when you, when you look at, you know, reduction in energy consumption, which is, which is great from a cost savings perspective, but you can, it, it doesn't seem that you, like you can mitigate your way out of any problem. You know, mitigations are like delays, especially like you take water, for example. You can't mitigate your way out of not ha having, you know, the population and the water supply not equal one another. You need to find a solution to the problem. And that would be right. know, desalination or, you know, something of, on that regard. Um, for me, I want to be able to use as much energy as I want to. I don't want to be, I don't want to be restricted so well my position would be we need clean energy and affordable energy so we can use as much of it as we want you know and 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 the the idea one of that that's one of the 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 when the bean counters are in charge of these issues that's where you have you have the problems like the the thing that frustrates the heck out of me as someone who's you know co-hosted hosted and back hosting this podcast again is that you know, we have a clear environmental issue with darkness restoration, preservation. You can go in a million directions, and it's way bigger than not being able to see fireflies. I think it goes down to the transcendent and the spiritual, Tim, where humans have a spiritual transcendent relationship to the, the night sky, which is extremely important to us. We just don't know that we don't have it right now. And so, but it's it's solvable, Tim. We can it's solve solvable, this problem. And I, I, yeah, and I think many of us are finding solutions right now um, that we just need to, I think uh, we sort of started to turn the corner with, you know, because we also had to sort of say, well, what exactly is the problem? Is it that, uh, and this goes back to your original point uh, about should we be calling this, um, you know, using the word dark all the time and all, all of the nomenclature and the descriptions, even uh, it's become, you know, sometimes an issue for, so Massachusetts right now, one of our efforts is to pass an outdoor lighting legislation at the state level. Uh, and, and it's often nicknamed the dark sky bill. And while that appeals to a, you know, many of us advocates in, in a certain sense, right? Um, the, the perception that a lot of people get, especially politicians when you, when, or, or the public, when you try to you know, explain this the first time, they say, well, I wanna be able to use my lights. Are you telling me I can't use any lights? And it sort of sends the wrong note that says, well, certainly if you need a light, we can use a light and we can design a light and we can, 
install a light that's appropriate. We're just talking about using the appropriate light for the appropriate task. Um, and, and I think that's the part where we have to sort of get across to people that we can still, you know, live in this first world set of countries and in these developing countries and utilize light for tasks, but we just have to use it in a responsible way. So it's more about responsibility and, and putting a tiny bit of thought into it uh, before you do it uh, versus just saying, no, you can't have any of this. Because then I think it sort of turns people off and saying, well, you know, I want to be able to let my dog out at night and, and see where he's going or, you know, I want to leave the porch light on for my partner who's coming home late from a night shift. Um, so we have to sort of start wrapping our heads around that people do use light for, for real tasks, uh, but there are solutions to making it work for everybody. And, yeah, I, and I think we, we're starting to have those solutions at, at play. Yeah, I mean, I think the IDA has switched to the acronym ROLAND, which is Responsible Outdoor Light at Night. And I think that's a lot more helpful than saying dark skies. So I, I don't think people understand what, what you're talking about. And I think ROLAND is a lot more helpful. Um, the other part of that is like, it's not about dark skies. In fact, it's about dark earth and dark water. And that, 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 that's the wildlife preservation move. That, that's the, the area. It's not just about the sky. It's also about the earth and the things that live on it and all living things that are here that, rec that need darkness. And, 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 that, and not just they don't need darkness. They need a cycle of darkness and light, which is the best way to describe it. And, you know, the argument that we should have no light, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't really fly because we know that um, light delivers security in certain instances. Um, but, I mean, that doesn't mean that we should not limit these things and, you know, control them and adjust them based on, on, on different things. For, with technology, Tim, we already have. Like, we have the technology. Well, I, I think that's what, you know, and, and I give a lot of presentations, as a lot of people do in this, this advocacy work. And one of the things that I think people um, may not realize is, is the technology is actually very basic, right? So the mm -hmm. thing that's going get to us, get us out of a lot of this mess is controls. Uh, particularly with the large, high-intensity municipal, you know, parking lot lighting, all the all the above, the big stuff, um, and we have it in our home already, right? So most people have a dimmer switch, mm -hmm. right, in their house for a chandelier or, or mm -hmm. you know, maybe the living room lighting or something like that, and we already control the light in an appropriate way for the task, right? You're watching a movie, you dim it or maybe turn it off entirely. Uh, we already know those concepts. We we've already played with them for for decades, and so it's just a matter of putting that outside and, and utilizing it. So so that's one of the cool things. Um, you know, we've talked about it for a long time in the IDA about controls, controls, controls. Um, but I really got to see firsthand what that meant uh, in some of the communities in Massachusetts. So, you know, Massachusetts has really pushed the, especially the, the LED streetlight retrofit uh, over the last few years to try to cut our carbon, right? So that we have these lofty goals of, of cutting the carbon out of our atmosphere, reducing energy. Um, but then we put on all these intelligent controls everywhere. And in a lot of towns and cities, they just didn't use them. So they're at That's full blast. That's the story of controls though. So, you, you know, yeah. you, the story of controls is, is one of, you know, implementation and then configuration and then forget about it and leave it and not use it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm in the lighting industry. I work in the lighting industry every single day. And I'll tell you that, people that some the people that work in the lighting industry are just as lack as much information about dark sky and dark earth and dark water as the general public and that is such a tragedy um you know because tim you're talking about massachusetts changing all of its street lights i would propose to you that they have to do it again <laughs> 
you know um it, i would say that and and why would the lighting industry be against that do you see what i'm saying to me the darkness play for the lighting industry is the single greatest revenue driver in the next 10 to 15 years for us like i mean i hate to turn an environmental issue that's about advocacy into dollars and cents but come on this is a this is a lighting boom waiting to happen tim well i i think I think you're right, and I, I think you know, as always, you know, things things come down to money in terms of, of sometimes the final straw and how to solve them, um, and we've seen that certainly in larger municipalities, right? So we've heard the stories of L.A. and Chicago and Seattle, and the list goes on and on and on. They were early adopters, and they did a second retrofit, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do a third. Um, I think what people, the average common person, would be sort of, and, and especially, you know. The, the people who make these decisions who are who are paying for them often, you know, the mayors and the, the city councils would be surprised to find out that they were sort of sold on these lights were going to solve, they were going to exist and they were going to function for 30, 40 years. Yeah. Right. And, and that's certainly not played out. Um, and, and either they have to be completely ripped out because we just didn't, you know, the technology was, was still green. It was early or maybe just a, not a lot enough thought was put into, you know, what exactly are we trying to accomplish with these new lights? Um, what is the appropriate lighting level? Um, and certainly, you know, the, the sort of revolution in thinking about, you know, spectrum, right? So that's that's a huge issue is, you know, just it wasn't on people's radar and, I, and you can sort of understand why, but, you know, what a what a crazy experiment we've we've done by changing the, the spectrum. Well, one, the one environmental sky. group bulldozed another. That's what happened. So- How do you mean? The, so, well, um, so I've been in the lighting industry for 20 years, 21, 22 years probably now. Um, and you know, when I was in the beginning before LEDs, there was a lot of, um, movement within the dark sky movement into the lighting industry. So you started to see cutoff wall packs, IDA messaging on boxes. Um, there was momentum there in say 2006 to maybe 11. And then the LED, um, the carbon group came in and bulldozed all that, just completely eliminated it. And I'm going to say ignored all the information prior to LED in the lighting industry. Um, I call them Johnny come lately in the lighting marauders. They, <laughs> they, I, they came in and they said, all the industry information is useless to us. This new LED stuff is going to last forever. And we're going to push this because we want to reduce energy consumption. And, you know, the lighting industry got sidelined. That's what happened. And, you know, in the beginning, many, most lighting people resisted LEDs. So the, um, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, which is the sponsor of this show, people that have been in the game for decades and decades, Philips, GE, Sylvania, um, the, uh, you know, very, the IES, the Illuminating Engineering Society, resisted LEDs. They didn't want them to penetrate because they didn't understand them. But what happened was other groups formed. One of them was the DLC, the Design Lights Consortium, and other, other stakeholders not in the lighting industry came in and said, no, no, it's time to do it this way. And so all, I mean, all manner of issues, flicker, we had solved the uh, oscillation issue with lighting, with T8, uh, T8 fluorescence, so they don't flicker anymore, causing health problems. Um, color temperature issues, uh, uh, cu cut off wall packs were making, um, making a, a penetra deep penetration into the lighting industry. And all of that was blown out. And we have flicker, uh, dark sky problems, non-cutoff wall packs, all sorts of manner of problems. And so I would say that one environmental movement bulldozed the other. 
The other was making progress. So that that's what that's my, in my opinion what happened. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think that's an interesting and important perspective because you know, you're coming from your perspective in the lighting industry, and I'm mm -hmm. seeing it on the other end as as maybe you know the citizen slash astronomer mm -hmm. advocate, and and certainly that's what we've seen as a result of of what you're. You know, that sort of fits a, a missing piece, so to speak, of, of what I see on the back end, right? So mm. for, I'm going to give you an example of, a let's say, a town nearby. Um, and this isn't just about streetlights. I think that's also one important thing. You know, people sort of, we, we like to pick on streetlights, but it's those wall packs, right? So, um, you know, one town, uh, and, and this is the problem, right? So in the name of efficiency, it was subsidized to take out the old lighting, which wasn't great, uh, but just in the pure, you know, purely for efficiency, put in new, you know, four or 5,000 K completely unshielded wall packs. They do cut energy. So, you know, you can check that box, but they, they disable your, your vision. So they have hard shadows. If you're, if it was for mm -hmm. security, you know, yeah, you, you probably can't even see the walkway in front of you. They're so blinding. Uh, if you measure, you know, they're, they're put in without design, right? So there's no designer involved. Um, when you actually measure the foot candles, they're way above what they should be. Um, so they're, they're not even really doing the job, right? They're blinding you. Um, they're, you know, they sort of miss the mark. And so that the task part, you can't check that box, you know, they're actually wasting energy because you, you could have actually saved more. So that's the sort of the interesting thing about that is, you know, sort of, if your goal was purely to save energy, you miss the opportunity to save 90% instead of just saving, saving 75 or 60, right? Um, because you chose too, too large of an LED. Um, so, you know, it, it hits a lot of different notes. Um, I, I think that that it, it's interesting to sort of tie all of this together. So from what you're talking about, the DLC and the IES and, and, and so on, just on efficiency and, and sort of speaks to me that, you know, as a scientist, you know, we should have spent some time experimenting. We should have spent some time, you know, for five or 10 years debating it uh, amongst all these groups before, you know, this grand experiment of changing the spectrum and, and and the type of light um to the point where you know what you sort of lose that efficiency if you have to redo the project two or three times right <laughs> that's an awful lot of waste of throwing lights in the trash um just in they itself. were designed so, to be thrown out i i mean the i've been skeptical of of um led like if you work in the lighting industry for a long time there's something there's a term called rated average life okay okay and what rated average life means is that uh, if let's say you say a light bulb is going to last 5,000 hours, okay? When your client comes in and goes, I wrote the date on it and I only use it eight hours a day, Tim. And uh, so I timed it and I only got 800 hours of life out of this light bulb. So I want a new one. You just say to them, look, rated average life is simply when the light bulbs are run in perfect operating conditions with the base down so that the heat comes away from the base of the lamp and rises up, after 5,000 hours, 50% were still working. That's what it means, right? And okay. any, any lighting device, and I would, I would posit that any piece of electronics or electromechanical equipment, okay, burns out in a very particular fashion, and it's like popcorn. So you ever throw a bag of popcorn in the microwave or cook it on the stove? Nothing happens in the beginning. Right. But at a certain point, at a certain heat level, heat. OK. At a certain point, when a he, when the popcorn heats up enough and the oils got on it or whatever the heck is in that bag, you put, they start to pop. 
little one here, little one there, little one here. And then eventually, they all start to pop. And then they stop. And at the end, you hear pop, 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 right? So the idea that a LED light fixture was going to last from for so long was a sucker's game from day one. And anybody in the this is why the lighting industry re- re- resisted it because they knew it was a sucker's game. Then eventually they bought in whole hog and everyone went wild. And um, they, we blinded ourselves and we forgot about all the lessons. It's it's almost like a Greek tragedy to be honest with you. It's so bad. Like when yeah. you actually look at it, it's it's epic in its proportions in terms of how bad the outdoor lighting mess is. Um, it's it, it, the, the, and, and the fact that the, the satellites can't see anything, I think above 3,700 Kelvin. So the measurement of light pollution is not really even correct because the satellites that look at light pollution can't see 5,000 Kelvin. They can only see HPS. They're, they're configured to see high pressure sodium. Right. So, yeah, I, I tried to figure out this number at one point because I was curious, you know, how, how much of that picture are we missing? And I, I think I want to say it's something like if you figure a good portion of the retrofits were, say, 4000 K on average, that you're, you're missing a good 20 ish percent of the light, you know, across the board. If we if we mm-hmm. especially in these areas that we've heavily converted already, like the northeast. Um, so. So, yeah, it, it's something, you know, we're, it's sort of like flying blind and, you know, forgetting you know, which way the rudder goes, you know, so we've, we've sort of missed a bunch of steps along the way of, you know, we should have sort of plotted along and tested this um, and, and thought about it and, and explain to people properly. I mean, I've seen some of the proposals come into towns when, you know, uh, and somebody comes to I, the RIDA chapter and says, help, help, you know, this, these, these LEDs are coming. We try to help them, you know, walk through and, and figure out which questions to ask and see if you can steer it at least in a little bit better direction because it's going to come no matter what, right? Um, because no matter what, at the end of the day, your town manager is sold on, you know, I want to save some money in 10 years, right? That's the proposal. And then you look at the the, the warranty on the lights and, you know, they're, they're told they're going to last 30, 40 years, but then, the, you know, the warranty might be like five or 10 at best um, in terms of support. So, so you know they're not going to last and then you see all these you know, examples now every day in my feed, there's a, a town whose lights have turned purple or blue because the coating wore off. Oh, the or, purple or thing is is like all over the place now. Like there's purple it's, lights. It's every day I get a hit about that, right? Um, <laughs> and, and part of that I have a feeling is probably because, you know, maybe they're running them at 100%. They're not dimming them, right? Because we know that, if, especially these electronics boards, if you turn them down a bit, you know, they're going to last a little bit longer from, from you know, less heat dissipation so you know that might be a, a part of it too or maybe it's just bad phosphor coating and you know like every product needs to be or blah 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 who cares you know what i mean like like you know i i you know people in the lighting industry knew this like guys in the trenches i'm not talking about white tower ivory people that like cook up schemes that people that actually work in the lighting industry every day they knew this was bs from day one i'm going back to 2009 10 11 you know what I'm talking about? Where where it's like these are never going to last forever. Sucker's game, um, and you know um, one of the problems with a sucker's game is that, and I get in a lot of trouble. My other podcast is called Get a Grip on Lighting. So, like, get a grip, man. Like, there's just no way that it's possible that they could last that long. Like, what piece of electrical equipment, electronic equipment? Electrical, mechanical, maybe like breakers can last a long time, but there's no piece of electrical, electronic equipment that has a life of longer than 10 years. That's never happened. Yeah. And, and to be honest, as somebody who, you know, besides being an astronomer, I, I work in, you know, in the lab often and, and working with LEDs for decades. 
was very surprised when I started hearing that these streetlights, which are now outdoor. So it's one thing, you know, I, I pop LEDs all the time, right? You, you know, a little over voltage and they go. Sure. Um, but then you put it outside where, you know, especially in you know, places like, you know, the, you know, the northern latitudes or New England, where you, your, your temperature ranges from, you know, well over 100 to below 20, uh, 20 below. And, and, and the idea that these things are just going to stay stable and the boards are going to not crack or what a joke capacitor is going to blow is it was was always sort of like mysterious to me like how they came up with these numbers like it's going to last a generation um they made the marketing department came up with the numbers the marketing department came up with the numbers not this not the research and development department it's marketing you know look anybody like okay take your cell phone put it outside in a freezing cold night for for three weeks and leave it out there and just cover it even if it doesn't get wet just like leave it on and see what happens to it after, you know, and ex- expose it to the elements. It's rid- it was ridiculous from day one. There's so many possible things that could go wrong. The second question is nobody ever asked themselves, how do you repair these things? You can't. Well, I think they're, they're more like you don't actually repair them anymore. They're hot swappable. You just take the whole mm-hmm. housing out. And, and so that's, you know, another issue is, is, you know, that's not necessarily out of warranty. That's not a, not a cheap repair. Um, now I guess they can they can self report when they re- repair. I don't know if that's the biggest selling point, but I pr- I um, promise the darkness listeners that Tim and I are going to get back to to the darkness. But I think this relates in a way. You know, I, there you know one of the things that's um I've noticed in the in the lighting industry and um is is two things, either institutional capture or institution apathy. Where um th- those two things I think one precedes the other. I think what happens is um, these institutions, a lot of them are volunteer driven and um, they kind of, they've gone, they've gone into this apathetic phase and I don't know if it's generational because the, the baby boomers are hanging on and they still want to be in charge and they don't want to put Gen X in charge or something like that. Something's going on with these institutions where the management is kind of half retired or they're growing older or whatever. They're not as engaged and they, they kind of want to be more consultant types. But if they leave, there's nobody in the pipeline to come in and take over or whatever it is. There's like an apathy. And what happens is they can be captured by other interests. And because of that, and I like there's there's that's the only explanation because to me the lighting industry was well aware and on of its way to solving the dark sky issues incrementally like you said experimenting moving you know a step by step by step but not you know it's not a get rich quick scheme or a get dark quick scheme but it was wasn't a dark get dark slow scheme either you know what I'm saying like we were on our way I was a lighting distributor I was you know, starting to sell dark sky wall packs with CFLs in them and low color temperature CFLs, 27K, 3000K, these sorts of things. And uh, we were even talking about putting sensors and bi-level and stuff like this, and then boom, it gets blown away. Um, I think that uh, interests in selling these products um, from manufacturers came in and um, silenced opposition to that. And that's a that's a serious problem when people with vested interests in selling something move into a space where vested interests in selling things are not appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be curious, would you apply that as well to, say, the spectrum question? Because, you know, I, I think we see that, too, where, um, you know, there's a big push to keep pushing these hyper efficient, you know, low, high high color temperature LEDs, but there's sort of a, you know, a pushback to, to even talking about, you know, these, these are contributing, you know, whether you're caring about stars or, 
you know, pollinators um, or, or human circadian rhythms, whatever your, your issue is. Or how about um, glare? It's still, or glare, or if you just care about glare and you don't care about any of the other things, um, you know, high CCT is, is a large culprit in, in all of that, yet we sort of continue to push. Well, that's a, that's a very simple, unscientific answer to that question. And again, I'm going to go back to just my experience in the lighting industry. If you tell someone to look up at a light fixture, a human being, and you say, if you had a 2,700K outdoor light there, and you had a 5,000K outdoor light there, and you said, which one was brighter? They would say the 5,000K, which one was brighter? If you say, which one yeah. do you want? They would say, give me the whiter one. That's the brighter, whiter one. And that's a reflex of the photopic, scotopic, our, you know, our, our lizard brains respond to that in a certain way. And we like that. But if you were to take that five, if you were to put the person below that 5,000K light and over a period of 15 or 20 minutes, slowly uh, change the color temperature incrementally down and lower the light level by 40%, they probably wouldn't even notice the difference. And on top of that, if you actually show them a hotel lobby or an office that is lit with a lower Kelvin temperature, they would say it looks nicer than the one with the five, a higher Kelvin temperature. And so the problem is that this decision is not evidence-based. The decision to go 5,000 Kelvin with LED outdoor lighting or 4,000 Kelvin has no basis in evidence at all. It is, serial, is, is simply based on the perception of people who are buying the lights and it's a sales thing and we it happens all the time to me you tell somebody well, I, it, I there's no evidence for it that's what i'm telling you yeah i i guess in my mind and this is just based on my own sort of anecdotal experience i would sort of separate that out a little bit and say that the people making the decisions yes they're focused on you know i guess my job is to put as much light in this task as possible mm -hmm. and and it and it does some often people sort of unfortunately equate uh high cct with brightness um but when it comes to an actual regular person, and we did this, for example, in my town in Pepperell, and, and we copied what other towns have done in terms of streetlight demos, mm -hmm. and we tried different color temperatures, and every single time people choose the warmest possible color. But did regular you ask them which one they thought lot of... was brighter? <laughs> uh, we, we, we didn't ask that specific question because that's not what we were. We wanted to mm. know what people liked. Without See, that's why into... you should be in charge of this, Tim. Like some, this is what this is the kind of thing that you know, like the the color rendering index. Okay, was always brought up with HPS. It has a low color rendering index, and that's true. Okay, so it's twenty or whatever it is, right? And um, you know, that's a problem. That's not the issue with LEDs. Now, maybe the color rendering index on a low cost, you know, 27 or 3000 K LEDs is, is 82 and the color rendering index of the 5000 K because it's more developed. We've done more of that is 86 or 90. That's statistically irrelevant. You're not talking, you know, 80 down to 20. You're talking about a very minor difference in color rendering index. And so the actual ability, the visual acuity is quite similar between the two. And I, I, there's no need for that 5,000 Kelvin or 4,000 Kelvin or 3,500 Kelvin or 3,000 Kelvin, actually. There's no need for it. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting. Um, and, and I wasn't sure what to expect when we did our, our, our retrofit demo. Um, where we set up uh, a series of 
uh, five LEDs, and then we put in as a, um, a control the high-pressure sodium. So we left it in there and didn't explain mm -hmm. that that was an old light to people. Um, and so other than a, you know, a couple of key people in town, um, most people had no idea what they were looking at. They just knew there were different lights, and they just knew they, they were supposed to vote on a few key things. You know, which did they overall prefer? Which color did they prefer? Which hmm. one had the, the most glare or the least glare? Um, so some of the basic things. So we tried to focus on you know, glare being safety and color preference for sort of aesthetic feel of a rural town. You know, what do people think they, they want? Um, and we had a collection of 2,700K, a 2,200K LED, and the high-pressure sodium. Uh, we didn't do any 3,000 or 4,000, okay? Uh, but within that group, so we had, you know, several different manufacturers. They were all, quote-unquote, fully shielded, as they all really are, technically. Um, they all had uplight of, I think, you know, zero or one. Um, so pretty good control and uplight, which is, is one of the key causes of the sky glow. And you're saying 1%, and, not 100, zero and 1%, like somewhere in between there, uplight. Right, right, right. As so, a percentage, so yeah. Basically, okay. basically, no, yeah. Um, and we did one week at full blast, 100%, and one week at 50%. And, and generally, people preferred the dimmed light, and they preferred the warmer light. And hmm. what we found okay. is we went even further. So, so that's what they chose, right? So, so that was the preference. Um, you know, as an IDA person, you know, I knew that the 2200K was in the mix, but you know, sort of left it to, to mm -hmm. what people wanted. And that's what they chose, uh, and that's what the town went with because they they sort of oh, had God. the input versus, and yes, you do get like that little hit from you know a little bit less efficiency, but it ended up with a product that people chose. There was public buy-in; people are happy with it. There's been no complaints uh, versus you know many of the other towns. People are, are going ballistic at the lights, you know, of what's been installed. Um, and and the other thing is we found is that we could dim even further. So we started them at fifty percent. Mm -hmm. And in, in the middle hours, they're down to 30% now. Wow. Guess how many people have noticed? Nobody. Zero. Zero. Yeah. And that's I what we find over that, and over yeah. again. Yeah. You, and, and we've heard this anecdote before, and it was, it was sort of fun to try in your own town. And because and, you know your neighbors, you know, you know, you get to talk to the police officers and say, hey, what do you sure. think? Well, actually, I can see better now. You know what it is? There's also the, uh, the window effect, right? Like a lot of people, you know, and I don't, I'm not a tech. I'm not familiar guy. with the window effect. Okay, so uh, I'll explain it to you. Um, I'm not a technical guy, so I don't know how to explain this in technical terms. So maybe, you know, one of the great PhDs who listen to this show or whatever, say, call again, get it straight. You're talking about, you're not talking about the window effect. You're talking about perception, whatever. But here's how it works. If you're, in a, if you're at a party at night and you're inside someone's house, no matter what the light level of the party is, okay, you're not going to be able to see outside the window. Because however bright it is in the house, it's, well, unless they have an LED streetlight, a crazy, nasty, 400 watt nasty outside. But let's just say, you know, it's dark outside and it's bright inside. You're in the party. If you're outside, you can watch everything going on through that window like it's a movie. You can see completely clearly as long as there's a contrast between where you are and where they are. And the reason why they can't see out the window is not because of the window. It's because it may not feel it, but there's a glare effect or there's a contrast effect. The human eye sees less good from a, an area of high brightness into an area of low brightness, right? It, it, if you're right. under the light, you can't see into the darkness. That's how it works, which is why a police officer at night, when they're suspicious of you and they come up to your car, they shine a flashlight in your face. So you can, they can see everything about you and you can't see them. 
right? And so when people are driving in their vehicles and they're under all of these super bright LEDs or they're coming out of a Walmart parking lot and the light level is like 75 foot candles or whatever, they can't see the road. They can't see it. And so this idea that, oh, it looks brighter here, but it looks darker over there. So what we need is more lights, more lights, more lights, more lights, more lights, so that it's bright everywhere. The problem is one of glare and contrast. Your your eyes or your pupils are so dilated because there's so much light that they can't adjust. And older folks, it takes them even longer to adjust to this darkness when they go and turn out of that parking lot or come off that on-ramp onto the highway or whatever it is. They can't see in front of them. And that's just a fact. That's not, and I don't know how to scientifically describe that to you, Tim, but that's a fact. So we have to reduce the light level, shield it and push it down. So people are seeing into the light rather than not being, you know, totally, um, I don't know what the right word is, but totally saturated by it. Their pupils are totally saturated by this LED light and, you know, they're totally broad and they can't see down the road. Yeah, I think, you know, the... The, the direct example for that is that headlights are really bright now and they do a mm-hmm. really good job of roadway illumination and that coupled with say like some reflectorized roadway markers um, and maybe some some dimmer lights along the way or, or more you know more spaced out lighting maybe you don't need them every you know so many feet uh, especially in rural roads would be just fine you know I, I'm a night worker I come home sometimes at two three in the morning mm-hmm. and um, you know the the roadways that don't have much lights on them, I can see just fine with my truck lights. Uh, but you you get to you know one town in particular, and and you can't see anything in the crosswalk, right? They're they're at full blast all night long. No one's out. It's not a town that has anything open past eight eight p.m. And um, you know you sort of have to question. Well, oh, there's a deer, and you you sort of see it last second. Well. And I can tell you that you know even even in your 40s, your <laughs> your eyes start getting a little bit a little bit hazier. Um, right? Because your eyes start to crystallize a little bit more. And every single talk I give, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this, you get uh, a person who's who's retired who says, is this why I can't drive anymore at night? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're My seeing more and more people come up. My mother-in-law just said that to me up. the other day. My mother-in-law yeah. just said that to me the other they, day. Yeah. They say, I cannot see anything. I don't feel safe driving anymore. And that seems tragic, right? So you're now we're, we're you know, people are living longer, but then they're more trapped, right? Because now they can't go out at night. Um, it seems like we've sort of failed in our job uh, in terms of, of illuminating the night uh, safely, right? Well, but I described the it to her like what... this. So she was, my mother-in-law was complaining to me and we were, uh, I can't we were driving somewhere and um, my son goes down and picks her up now and brings her back. And so I, you know, I was like, okay, I'll drive you home, whatever. I'm in the car with her. And she's like, yeah, I can't, I can see now, but when we drive under that bridge and we come out, I can't see for a while. After I come out from under the bridge, you know, the bridge has these super bright LED lights, right? And the, and the bridge has all these bright LED lights around it. So you enter this saturation of ex- extremely high light levels at night. And when she comes out of the other side of the bridge, she says she can't see for three or four seconds. And it scares the crap yeah. out of her. Yeah. And she's like, you can see right now? I'm like, yeah, I can see fine. She's like, I can't see anything in front of the vehicle. That's just her telling me, you know, that this is my eyes. It, my eyes are not adjusting as quickly as yours are. And so I can't drive at night anymore. And yeah. And, and, and when you say stories like that, I mean, that's exactly the story I have in my mind. And I think about, well, if I'm having a tr- trouble now, if I'm driving from Cambridge to Boston across the bridge, and by the time, you know, I hit all those, those bridge lights and I get to downtown Boston, I can't see anybody in the crosswalk. And I'm in my 40s. Imagine being in your 60s or 70s or 80s. 
it must be pretty terrifying. So, um, you know, it's something we really need to think about, especially as we also, you know, we're trying to push people into biking more and, and, and um, you know, <laughs> totally. pedestrian, right? So we, we want people to use public transportation and, and all these things. Well, you want to be able to see, you know, the bus or the, or the bicyclist on the side of the road. Um, that, that's an environmental issue too, right? So, so we want to make all those, all of this is really connected. Now, what is Michael Colligan doing here, dressed differently, sounding a little bit differently because it's a different day? Well, that's because this conversation with Tim Brothers went on for another 30, 40 minutes. And so we decided to split this episode up into two episodes. That's right, Tim. We're getting a two for one out of you. So the second one will drop in a couple days for right now, Darkness Restoration Advocates. Thank you for listening. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.